Welcome to Interviews with Innocence, a podcast about spirituality, consciousness, and exploring the wisdom our children bring into this world. I believe that our very young children are our greatest teachers. After all, they're the masters of living in the present moment, bubbling in unconditional love, enjoying the messiness of life, and curious about the universe in all its dimensions. The pure essence that young children exhibit lives within all of us. My hope is that these interviews will help us discover, embrace, and connect with the sacred core of childhood that resides within each of our hearts. I am your host, Marla Hughes. Today, I will continue reading The War Diaries, March 20th, 2022, Day 25. The ancestors are watching and the tears in Vladislava's eyes. The magic of the place you love meant that Sichao, surrounded by a large green clump of trees, seemed like the safest place for us at the time. In 1944, the three Redzillo Willow sisters walked 20 kilometers from Supia to Sichao after an evacuation order was issued from the Soviets who burst into the basement and told the families there to leave as soon as possible, for they were in imminent danger of being reoccupied by the Nazis. The Red Army was at Barno Noa, not far from San Domarez, where we were yesterday on our outing. The front line was shifting. The older girls, including their brother Stas, had been staying in Slupia since their parents had been arrested by the Nazis in 1940. Their father taken to Majdanek and their mother to Ravensbrück. Anna, the youngest, was only nine months old at the time, and she stayed at Sichau in the care of Rector Konstanty Michalski. The house that belonged to Chrysia and Maji's Razillo is still standing today and functions as a care home. This is where Stas and his sister stayed up until August 1944, before the long walk home. As a matter of note, Stas was grouped together with others who would also make their way to Sichau separately. When the mother escaping Kharkiv with her blind son and daughter, noticeably affected by trauma, arrived here at Sichau midweek, we offered to rehouse them in a town flat in Stazau. The young woman could not stop remembering the sounds of shelling and explosions, and when she arrived here to see that our property was still in half ruin, she was undone. It's not often that someone has such an aversion, but given all she had come through, perhaps Xi Chao was too much of a reminder of the devastation of war. Visible damage left in a state of decay. I felt it was a bad idea to leave them on their own under the circumstances and pushed for another solution. We called Pan Grzgors, a Ukrainian native who speaks Polish, with whom we consult quite frequently these days. He and Stefan drove to the convent in Pacanal. The sisters indicated they might be able to help. When they opened the door, there was a larger-than-life, or it seemed to Stefan at the time, framed photograph of his great aunt and uncle, alongside a sizable plaque thanking them for their generosity in funding the convent not only after the war, but throughout the remainder of their lives. 
When I heard the story that night, I knew this family would be in the protective space of those who are certainly better qualified to support and serve them. The living presence of our ancestors had guided them to safety. The magic of Seychelles. Every nerve ending in my body stands on alert. My life will never be quite the same again as my choices will be now will be now be informed by this experience. Do I need it? Can I live without it? Is there something more important I, I could be doing? Am I making a difference in my household by the decisions I make? The nuance and subtleties of the everyday are particularly poignant. The feeling that overtakes me when I consider all of us living under one roof, each and every wounded one of us, Emerging from our room, some irritated, frustrated, overwhelmed, frightened, remote, exhausted, restless, angry, how we all swirl together in this space, co-creating our lives after a single twist of faith. Fate has thrown us together against our will by the hardship of war. Yesterday, we went to San Domerez in a hefty van that seated 26. Paul and I took another car to carry the remainder. The sun was high in the sky, and even though it wasn't very warm, it was beautiful. We walked around town for a couple of hours. We had ice cream. We looked in shop windows. We sat in the main square and watched the children play, then pizza and the drive home. I was hoping for a reprieve, but we got a call that a family in distress needed a place to stay. Fortunately, we have two young men under the age of 18 who are capable of moving beds and mattresses, and one of the ladies who work for us sprung into action with clean sheets and towels so that by five o'clock we were ready for their arrival. Paul and I rested and then met the bus from Warsaw at eight. We haven't gotten to know our new family yet. They will likely decompress for a few more days. The father has had brain cancer and is traveling with his wife, two children, and mother. He is not well, and neurologically, his illness is obvious. They crossed the border in early March and were right away put into a large stadium without privacy or adequate toilet services, poor hygienic conditions, and food without much nutritious value. They got sick. They left the stadium and returned to the train station platform. At least there they could find warmth. This is where Stefan met them yesterday. He volunteers there when in Warsaw. They were on their way to Lodz. Apparently they had little money left and found a hotel they could afford and decided to spend it for a good night's sleep. Thankfully they are here now. I can't even imagine what would have become of them with no money and no relatives outside of the Ukraine. I'm a long way from my conversation with my cousin, Basia, early in the week. We were talking about her friend from choir, who's a Ukrainian cookbook author and is responsible for raising funds for the soldiers. We were talking about how women move through the world during a crisis, what they hold sacred, and in some cases, what a civilization holds valuable. Poland lived without borders for 200 years. They remembered themselves through language, folk art, and food. 
With a house full of Ukrainian women, we are always cooking, walking dogs, running after children, cleaning and speaking in their native language. I am reminded of the resolve of the Sea Chow ancestors. One woman told me that if I could say only one word in their language, it would be borscht. Not soup, but borscht. This is the defining word when remembering the Ukrainians, when beginning to understand who they are. It made me think of the tears in Vladislava's eyes when a relative from Russia tells her that the Ukrainians are murdering themselves, that Russians have nothing to do with this war. And no matter what she says to defend her position, they have made up their minds that she is, in fact, the perpetrator. I am afraid for the Ukraine. I'm afraid their borders will disappear and they will have to go on the run for years to come, holding on to their language, their folk art, and their borscht. Tomorrow we will shop for curtains for the nursery. We will also take Andrezaj with us as he needs trousers. One of the women said to me this morning that yesterday in San Domarez was joy. No, in fact, she said it was joyful. It is true that our first visit was restorative and we are planning another adding, this time to Krakow in two weeks. War Diaries, March 24th, 2022, day 29. Yesterday, I spent the better part of the day in a processing center for Ukrainians who are being sponsored by UK families or joining their own families already resettled. It was an impressive setup in a modern office building in Rezal city center. The visa application department of Sheffield sent a dozen or so volunteers to assist in this massive relocation plan. It was well-organized, friendly, with plenty of water and fruit and toys on hand for the children, while these tireless caseworkers attended to each group. There were upward of 100 people filling, filing through, and according to the gentleman who worked with us, it was about an average number per day. There are over 2 million Ukrainian refugees in Poland. Of course, not all will stay, and nobody knows how long the war will last and what will be left upon return. Who will be in the market to rebuild? Who will have the stamina and who will not? For the moment, though, some are here taking shelter and making a plan. Sichao has been a place of rare occurrence as it has allowed its residents an opportunity to recharge. They have a private space with an in-suite bathroom, nutritious food, on-site administrative assistance to advise with their documents, access to medical care, medicine, new shoes and clothes, and toys for the fake children. This is possible because of our generous donors from around the globe. We do not accept assistance from the government. However, today we experience an exodus. Room one and six have moved on to the Netherlands and we understand room 11 is right behind them. Of course, there are hundreds if not thousands in line for these rooms, which will be prepared for the next uprooted traumatized family in need of legitimate care. But my heart is feeling the great sadness of one who stays behind, fully conscious of the unpredictable stability these families will encounter along the way. Let me pause here and redefine the word family for you. These are mothers and children traveling alone. There are no fathers, brothers, husbands, only women and their babies. 
It is necessary to visualize this in order to understand the, compact, the impact. I'm not so grandiose to think that CCHAO can be all things to all people. That would certainly be an inflation. It's just that I can't stop crying again when the house was full and those in it at a temporary stopping point in their diasporic journey, there was an odd sense of peace, a kind of Arcadian bliss, a pastoral atmosphere where we all perceived ourselves safe from the horror of war and the evil that relentlessly pursues like a sweet dream. But our situation is otherwise. It is the image of women and their children on the run from a beast, a monster who cannot be satisfied. In fact, so dissatisfied is he that he murders pregnant women and women at their most sacred hour when giving birth. He thinks this will satisfy his hunger. This is our world, and it has been for a very long time. When I lived in Scotland, I remembered a story that came out of the Iraq War. It was a busload of 20 or so women coming back from work. They were intercepted by a tribe of one affiliation or other and beheaded each and every one. One was pregnant. That night, Mama didn't come home, nor did a daughter, a wife, an auntie, a sister, or a friend. This is our world. There is something in me that chooses to weep because the rage is so great and I don't know what to do with that. So I will cry and I will keep buying cake and toys for the children, the new ones. The ones on the road already have a doll to carry. That comforts me greatly. I know that what is happening today is another chapter in the book of nationalistic ideologies, and that doesn't really help me figure this out psychologically because I am mad and everything in me wants to protect and restore to its rightful place a woman who makes broth for her sick child. Women seek many a path today, so I must mind myself that I don't stereotype us but I feel we are in danger of losing values that historically have been associated with women. When will it be enough for those who have enough but continue to consume? Will there ever be a time again when domestic life is appreciated, enjoyed, and treasured for what it is? Hard to say. It's not a question to pose to an inner city single mother raising children on a minimum wage. Nothing terribly appealing about that, is there? So this is our world. What do we value? When will we change? When will we wake up to a more superior consciousness than what social media represents? As I write this entry, we have already had a call to receive a woman, a grandmother, and two children with no money on the platform in Warsaw. They will be coming tomorrow. Infrastructures, attitudes, values will have to creatively change in order for there to be a chance at a new consciousness. We are living in a fatherless world. We lost our fathers during the industrial revolution to machines, and now we are losing them to war. The inner cities are plagued by the absence of a father who is fully present in his child's life. I can't bear to think of those Ukrainian men who will not be coming home again but this is part of the reality of war. John Hill writes in At Home in the World. Obviously there are vast differences in the social circumstances of the privileged few who can derive much satisfaction in transiting from one culture to another when compared with economic or political immigrants. 
No doubt the privileged have problems of their own. Nevertheless, they and their dependents receive ample help in making necessary adjustments. Many international schools and social faculties are professionally geared to alleviate the pains of cultural change and cultural loss. Far worse is the plight of economic or political immigrants who have been forced to leave their original homeland. They begin their new life in a state of disorientation, often without any adequate aid and readjustment, and are usually unwelcome or stigmatized. Slums and ghettos, racism and sex tourism express some of the ugly living conditions of millions of men, women, and children who are forced to live in transitional spaces due to political persecution, the need for economic survival, or the destabilizing effects of exploitation of their land and culture by the richer nations of the industrial world. It has become increasingly difficult for immigrants from their third from the third world to achieve equal status with the citizens of their host country. Paul and Stefan and I are seriously considering something more than care for these residents. And once we have a plan in place, I will let you know. Meanwhile, we have our rooms, our kitchen, our hearts to new men, women and children who need to regroup, rest, and reset. War Diaries, March 27th, 2022, day 32. Natasha is from the Dnipro area of the Ukraine. She speaks both Russian and Ukrainian, but I think most of the time she is speaking Russian. She is a force. Her dark flashing eyes are quick to size up a situation. For example, on the morning after her late arrival, she right away noticed the orangery the room filled with donations, and didn't hesitate a minute to collect a bag of things for her family. It is rare to see a man traveling with the women, but her son has brain cancer, so was permitted to leave for medical reasons. He is 37. His wife and two children are also with him. Natasha wasn't here, but three days when she took over as commando and chief in charge of the kitchen, she enlisted Erna as her deputy, and together they made what the Poles call Pierzyreski, potato and cheese-filled dumplings, sausages wrapped in a yeasty dough and a pot of mashed potatoes that stood the size of an average three-year-old. I couldn't imagine what in the world she was planning to do with all those potatoes until the next day when she sweeps through the kitchen, boasting a plate full of mince-stuffed potato patties that have been deep-fried. I think they're called Zerezi, and I want her to sell them. We have a window in the kitchen that was open and selling burgers to the students in the village before the virus. This window would be perfect for Natasha. It's like a metaphor, this window. She opens it and something of her sorrow, her experience now of exile, the broken heart of a mother with a sick child. Her tra tra traditions are exchanged hand to hand. Let not her creative offering be eclipsed or hidden away because of the cruel and vicious circumstance of war. No, Natasha is not a non-person. Historically, the table was the central nervous system of the house. It was usually in front of the fireplace where the cooking was done. In fairy tales, it's prominent as food, as is food and cooking and feasting. When we celebrate together, we typically cook and dine together. We break bread together. We drink wine together. We share our recipes. 
We restore ourselves from sickness to health with a warm bowl of bouillon or a cup of herbal tea. Over the years, however, the table has come to serve as more of a decorative feature in the modern home. I'm not implying that there are not those who don't still cook for themselves and serve at table, but we, with the advent of restaurants and takeout options, including delivery of prepackaged foods, the table has become more versatile, not carrying the same psychological weight of times past, certainly not the same mythology. Its function is not exclusively a place to gather and eat, but now doubles as a place of work, a place where we can stack our mail, papers, books, and other non-food items. With the rise of the machine and the modernization of our daily lives, we have demythologized our cultural habits. To see a lineage of women in a house such as grandmother, mother, daughter, sharing in the responsibilities of the household duties is a rare sight. And where this lineage is evident, it's often uprooted by war and the genocidal impact of war leading to complete disruption and ultimate exile. This is only one aspect of the domestic life cared for by women, which has been endangered for the whole of my adult life. The table as the central nervous system, as a central gathering place, as the heart of the household. The table has also been threatened by extreme poverty in some countries. I am remembering a book that took me by storm called Evicted. Poverty and Profit in the American City by Matthew Desmond. This book offers an unequivocal, unflinching portrait of the inner city public housing disaster in major cities in America. In it, he writes, if poverty persists in America, it is not for lack of resources. We lack something else. I realized it must seem I am far afield from Si Chow and the resident women living and cooking and creating as best as of a temporary life here as is possible. Not at all. What is happening around the globe is a war on women and it's not exclusive to the Ukraine. Women and children are forced into exile daily, either because of a strong military presence enforcing school closures or no running water are put out of their homes because of non-payment, leaving them out in the cold with nowhere to go, food shortages. The stories are literally countless and is the, it is the most vulnerable among us affected. What is it, the something we lack as a civilization? How is it that this problem continues to escalate with no stoppage in sight? Women are struggling everywhere and there are few foundational support systems in place that can protect them, or that restore them when they have been compromised. And I haven't even touched upon the subject of human trafficking, but you can count there being young victims of this sort of exploitation resulting from the war in the Ukraine where families have been forcefully torn apart. Inna is our resident grandmother's daughter. She is the sister of the one who made the harrowing journey from Kiev with their mother who went into hospital the day after she arrived. Inna lives in the UK and is preparing the documents necessary to relocate them both. Inna hadn't seen her mother since last April when she was in Kiev visiting. She arrived as a child yesterday. When she walked into the hospital, her mother said, did you bring the chicken? Food. 
and how we depend upon it, how it informs our family traditions, our relationships, and our memories, the table, the place where we cry, laugh, eat, celebrate, argue, share friendships, where we bond with each other, where intimacy is central. This is what we bring with us into exile, what travels with us everywhere we go. From generation to generation, it is the food, the recipes, the traditions we long to preserve. There is not a day that passes when I don't feel tremendous privilege in the presence of these women who come together every day around the table. I will stop here for today as there is so much to say on the subject of food and the table. I don't often say it, but your prayers really do hold us together here. Thank you. I will continue next Monday. Thank you for listening and sending love, prayers, and friendship to all these beautiful people. I just wanted to share that in the show notes, I will be putting um, Amber and Paul's bios just for you to read about them and their backgrounds because they're both fascinating people. And also the information if you would like to make a donation to their fund helping um, the Ukrainian people. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening in today. If you want to learn more about the show, you can find us at interviewswithinnocence.com and on Facebook or Instagram at interviewswithinnocence. Please write me a message. Tell me what you liked and let me know what else you would like to hear. I would love to hear from you. And if you liked what you heard, please leave us an iTunes rating and review. It helps other listeners find the show. Thank you. Thank you.